Israel's military says it's destroyed 130 Hamas tunnel shafts in Gaza since the start of ground operations. Coming up, the view from the occupied West Bank, where Palestinian farmers say the military and settlers harass them as they work on the olive harvest. It's Wednesday, November 8th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Republican presidential debate tonight could be a make-or-break moment for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who's been polling well in some of the states that vote early. And several big cities, including Chicago, Denver, and New York, are grappling with how to house migrants who've been bussed in from the southern border by the governor of Texas. Migrants now make up more than half of the city's total residents in the shelter system. How the cities are handling the crises coming up. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The five Republican candidates facing off in tonight's presidential primary debate in Florida are each vying to be seen as a possible alternative to Donald Trump. The former president remains the clear frontrunner. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley will be closely watched. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had been seen as the most likely alternative to former President Trump, but former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley has made an unexpectedly strong showing in recent polls and is making a major push in the early voting states of Iowa and New Hampshire. Tom Rath is a longtime Republican leader in New Hampshire. He says Haley needs to make the case to voters that she's more than just a good second choice. She can't sell herself as an alternative to Trump. She's going to sell herself as I am the best candidate for this party at this time in this race. A total of five Republicans have qualified for this, the third GOP primary debate. Trump is skipping it and holding his own event nearby. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Trump's eldest daughter, Ivanka Trump, uh, took the witness stand in her father's civil fraud trial in New York today. She's no longer a defendant in this case, unlike her father and two eldest brothers. But the prosecution alleges Ivanka Trump was a central figure in her father's scheme to inflate the value of his assets to secure favorable terms on bank loans and insurance. The war between Israel and Hamas is in its second month, and the death toll in Gaza continues to climb. Many human rights groups are calling for a ceasefire, but the U.S. wants what is calling humanitarian pause. Here's NPR's Rachel Treisman. A ceasefire is when both parties agree to end the military phase of a conflict, typically as part of a political process. A pause would stop the fighting in an area for a limited time to help civilians there. The leaders of both Israel and the U.S. are opposed to a ceasefire. They say it would just allow Hamas to regroup. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says there can be no cessation in the fighting, however temporary, until Hamas releases all the hostages it took last month. The Biden administration seems to disagree. It's now pushing Israel to consider humanitarian pauses to help get aid in and hostages out of Gaza. The White House says Biden and Netanyahu discussed the possibility on Monday and are set to talk again in the coming days. Rachel Treisman, NPR News. In the era of rising interest rates, one in three home buyers is opting to pay all cash. That's according to a new study out today by the real estate company Redfin. Chen Zhao, who leads Redfin's economic data team, says that in September, cash for homes purchases rose 29.5% from a year earlier. A lot of homeowners are sitting on a ton of equity that they have built up because prices have gone up so much, and maybe they're moving to a more affordable location. So maybe they have a home in the San Francisco Bay Area, and now they're moving to, you know, Denver, Colorado. Zhao says the findings also reflect ongoing economic and racial disparities in home ownership. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of a Medway family that was trapped in Gaza for more than three weeks says they're grateful to be back home in Massachusetts. They spoke with WBUR's Deborah Becker earlier today. Abud Okal, his wife Wafa Abu Zayda, and their one-year-old son Yusuf went to visit relatives in Gaza in September and were trapped there after the war broke out between Israel and Hamas. Okal says he's still processing his family's ordeal in Gaza, but he's thankful to be home. I don't think we would be out without the help and support from everyone that supported us here in Massachusetts locally, from the community, as well as family and friends and, and elected officials. Okal says his relief is tempered by worries about family members still trapped in Gaza. He says he'll continue to try to help them get home as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. A new Harvard study finds that giving more workplace flexibility to older employees can reduce their risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Dr. Lisa Berkman of Harvard's T.H. Chen School of Public Health was a lead author of the study. She says it found that additional flexibility for workers ages 45 and older does not mean reduced productivity. This is really oriented toward low- and middle-wage workers, that upper-wage, more advantaged workers often have these benefits kind of built in anyway. Like I could go pick up my mother for a doctor's appointment, but people in much more constrained working environments don't have that opportunity. The study followed about 1,500 people over six months to see how increased job flexibility achieved a better balance between work and home life. Two Bay State residents face federal conspiracy charges for allegedly operating a network of brothels in Massachusetts and Virginia. Prosecutors say Han Lee of Cambridge and Jun Myung of Dedham and a third person from California ran brothels in Cambridge and Watertown and two in Virginia. Alleged clients connected with the brothels online and met in high-end apartment buildings in North Cambridge and Arsenal Yards in Watertown. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, their clients included elected officials and government contractors who have security clearances. The names have not been released. 42 degrees in the Boston area. The sun is setting on a nice but chilly day. Tonight should be windy again and cold again. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Could see showers tomorrow off and on through the day, up in the mid-40s tops. 42 now in Boston at 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly reporting this week from the Middle East. There are times on this job when you set out to do a story And you think you know where it's going, and the day ends up spinning in unexpected directions. This is the story of one such day in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, the other Palestinian territory. We came here yesterday to see a small town called Deir Estia and to meet a 54-year-old man named Ayub Abu Hejli in his family home where he made us Arabic coffee. Okay, this is a little bit... Over the coffee, he explains a problem he's having. I uh, planted around 370 olive trees, grapes, uh, figs. 370 olive trees. They are groaning with olives, ready to pick. This is harvest season. But he hasn't been able to. Not one. We faced a little bit of problems before uh, in the harvest season, but in this season it's terrible. 
He says Israeli soldiers and settlers have blocked him from his land since the war started. That was back on October 7th, when Hamas insurgents attacked Israel, killing more than 1,400 people. While the world has focused on Israel's response in Gaza, violence here in the West Bank is also spiking. Attacks on Palestinians by the Israeli military and settlers are up. The International Crisis Group estimates more than 130 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the war began. Israel's military says they are conducting raids on militants. Ayub says when he tries to get to his olive trees, the war is the reason Israeli soldiers give for stopping him. They say it's forbidden you to stay here because we are in a war, so we are coming to protect you. So I say to him, you are not coming to protect me, you are coming to protect the settlers because you are coming from a settlement. On October 13th, Ayub says that settlers rolled in with diggers, tore up the dirt road to his fields, that they severed the irrigation pipes he'd installed. He has not set foot on his land since. I'm raising these olive trees like my children. So it's not the issue of income. It's our land, you know, the connection of the trees, the soil, the stones. Uh, this is uh, the important. The olive harvest does represent a key supplement for many family incomes. But Ayub's point is, for many families, the land has been passed down for generations. Ayub hopes his children will farm his land one day. This is how it works around here, says Donna Sharon, a rabbi from a kibbutz in central Israel. She is Israeli and with a group called Rabbis for Human Rights, who are here at Ayub's house with us. They work with Palestinian farmers during the olive harvest, trying to help farmers access their land safely. She told me this while we were waiting by the car. There is no other place to be as far as I'm concerned. The way things here are managed or mismanaged is beyond awful. I just want to make a very clear statement, not on my behalf, definitely not on behalf of my religion. On this day, Ayub offers to show us his land, not to walk on it, just glimpse it from a neighboring hill. He does this trip often, says it won't be a problem, that if we are stopped, we'll just be asked to leave. We follow Ayub in his car down a steep dirt road, only a few minutes drive from his house in town. We stop. He shows us where the road has been torn up. So they damaged there, as you see, three times they damaged the road. Our team pulls on our flak jackets, press written in big letters across the front, and then we hear a buzzing. A drone has appeared to hover above us. Someone knows we're here. We start walking over the remnants of the destroyed road, and then... I don't know, maybe settlers, maybe soldiers, I don't know. Soldiers appear. Quite a few of them. Uh, one, two, three, yeah, four is. that I can see. Mm. Some come over the hill on foot. Others drive up in an SUV. Some have their faces covered with balaclavas. All of them, about a dozen by the end, have guns. Hi. Shalom. Shalom. Media. Press. They are not happy with us. In Hebrew, they yell that we need to leave, that we have crossed a barrier. For the record, there is no barrier, no signage. They tell us this is a time of war. And then they separate Ayub from our group, tell us they need to question him. 
We say we don't want to leave without him. Is it possible for someone to stay here with him? The soldiers refuse. A gun lifts, points straight at us. So we back off. As the soldiers walk Ayub around a hill and out of our sight, we ask Dana, the rabbi who works regularly with Palestinian farmers here, how unusual is this situation? We've never seen anything like this before. This is not according to any protocol that we're familiar with or are experienced with. She says she is extremely worried. Her colleague, Danny, gets on the phone, starts making calls in Hebrew, in Arabic. Okay. Calls to the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, to the police, to lawyers. We also get on the phone with a media contact we have in the IDF. We tell him where we are, what's happening. So first of all, I will check right now what happened and I'll see what we can do about it. And we wait. We don't want to leave Ayub. The soldiers told us they would only question him for a few minutes, but we can't tell if he's still nearby. The soldier's vehicle is gone. So we're now at about 45 minutes since Ayub has been separated from us, taken. I can't see him, uh, but the, we can see the soldiers, so we don't think they've left or taken him anywhere. And so we wait. Around then, the drone comes back. It's hovering lower and lower. Finally, more than 90 minutes after Ayub was taken away, our IDF contact calls. He reports Ayub is safe, and he strongly advises us to leave the area. So, reluctantly, we do. We head to Firas Diab's office. He's the mayor of Daristia. We'd called him to see if he could help. <laughs> mayor Diab is also an olive farmer. On the side, 160 trees. And I can't harvest them because they're close to a settlement too and I can't even reach them. No harvest at all? You haven't been able to get any olives? Until this day, no. Big portraits of the late Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and the current Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas hang on his wall at Town Hall. We ask the mayor why scenes like the one we just witnessed are unfolding in fields all around his town. What do you think the goal is here? Why, why is the military doing this? This is an old thing that we see in a new way. Their goal, their aim is the land, and they're using the war in order to seize the land. Back at Ayub's house, the family has gathered. Everyone's worried. Everyone is tense. Then, his sister's phone rings. Ayub has been released. The sister bursts into tears of relief. She calls me to her. You Americans, she tells me, look at what's happening to us Arabs here, to our people, to our land. Ayub's son goes to collect him. We all wait outside in plastic chairs. And soon, a car pulls up the hill. 
honking in celebration. Ayub gets out, big smile, everyone rushes to greet him. His daughter, his wife, his sons, his young granddaughter. We sit down with Ayub to make sure he's okay and to hear what happened. He tells us after he was led away, he was blindfolded, handcuffed. Then they drove him to a military office in a nearby settlement where he was mocked and questioned. They say it's, uh, it's our land, it's not your land. So you must forget it. But now he's home. Are you okay? I'm okay, alhamdulillah. As we prepare to leave, I ask Ayub, will you go back? Will you try to see your land again? I will go back. Don't worry. They will arrest it and I will return back and until I will fix my land. It's our land. NPR producers Kat Lonsdorf and Erica Ryan and local producer Sasan Khalif contributed to this story. And our reporting continues through this week. We'll be hearing voices from across Israel and across the region. You can read more and hear more of NPR's reporting on the war between Israel and Hamas at npr.org on your phone, on your smart speaker, or on your good old-fashioned radio. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Not a lot of movement by the end of the day on Wall Street today. A slight dip for the Dow. The index fell about a tenth of a percent. S&P rose of a tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained just under a tenth of a percent. The Cambridge-based car shopping site CarGurus is buying a car trading company in Texas. The deal is with Car Offer. It's worth $75 million in cash. CarGurus already had a 51% stake in the company. CarGurus' new headquarter offices are being built over the Mass Turnpike. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Trefflers, specializing in the restoration of furniture, decorative arts, paintings, and upholstery by skilled artisans. Custom framing, too, in Newton and at treffler.com. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 15 minutes, it's hard to imitate the Boston accent. Just ask any non-native actor who's tried it. Our story on the accent is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. 
Increasing clouds through the evening and overnight tonight. Temperatures falling to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, better get out the raincoat. Could have showers off and on through the day. Temperatures back in the mid-40s. Could make it to the low 50s on Friday with more clouds likely. 42 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Cheng. And I'm Scott Detrow. Yesterday's elections in states like Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky have Democrats feeling good. More than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion rights continue to be a key issue. Increasingly conservative Ohio voted to protect them in the state's constitution, and abortion was a key theme in Virginia's legislative races as well. For more on what we can make of the results and what they may mean for next year's presidential election, NPR's senior political editor, Domenico Montanaro, is on the line. And Domenico, uh, you're joining us from a place pretty relevant to that presidential election. Where are you? Hey there, Scott. Yeah, I'm in Miami. I'm literally looking at the debate site uh, right now, and uh, we'll be there for the Republican presidential debate tonight, where the stage has been winnowed down to just five candidates. So it's going to be really interesting. So we'll get back to that election in a moment, but let's start with what happened last night. Big picture, what do these results tell us about the electoral landscape right now? I mean, the big takeaway continues to be about abortion rights. I mean, it's still a losing issue for conservatives, a motivating one for Democrats. I mean, just look at Ohio, which has really become a red state favoring Republicans in presidential elections, but a majority voted to enshrine abortion rights into their state constitution. Remarkable, really. And you wonder when Republicans will realize that this is just a losing issue for them. And uh, Virginia's legislature was uh, on the ballot last night. And I know from watching uh, playoff baseball, every single commercial break, there were ads about abortion rights. That issue just dominated that race as well. Oh, my goodness. It was abortion rights versus crime, and clearly abortion rights won out. You know, Democrats retained the Senate, retook the House, controlling the entire legislature really, again, on the back of abortion as an issue. Republican Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin really campaigned across the state on a 15-week abortion ban. Now it's not going to happen, and he spent a lot of political capital on this. His political career really took a huge blow last night. Mm -hmm. He's not only left as a lame duck for his final couple of years in office, but his chances for president in 2028 really took a nosedive. I mean, he championed a policy Republican activists don't even want, and clearly swing voters rejected it too. Like I said, crime was also a big issue here. It's a thing Republicans continue to think that they can use to help blunt the effects of abortion as an issue uh, in the suburbs and with women, and boy, were they wrong. I mean, looking at the data, Democrats really used abortion as an issue across the country, up and down the ballot, more than 350,000 
airings on TV and online focusing on this. Three quarters of those ads run by Democrats, more than $90 million spent, according to uh, the uh, ad tracking firm Ad Impact and analyzed by NPR. Uh, conversely, you know, $60 million was spent on ads f- related to crime, mostly by Republicans, just didn't have the same salience. Aside from a place like Long Island, where Republicans continued last night to make gains, they're really going to have to re-examine how to win in the suburbs and swing areas. And that includes with these school board fights, you know, in book bans. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a backlash to that in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where Democrats organized and retook a local school board there too. Uh, key governor's races to tell us about quickly. Yeah, big win in Kentucky for Democrat Andy Bashir. His win, uh, you know, gives him re-election. Remarkable what he's been able to do there politically in a state that voted for Trump by almost twenty-six by almost twenty-six points. If Yunkin stock has plummeted for twenty twenty-eight, Bashir's is on the rise. Scott. And you got about twenty seconds left. Confident you, if anyone can do it. What if anything does this mean for the election a year from now? Uh, I'd put as much stock in these results as I would swing state polls a year out from an election. The <laughs> fact is, hmm. you know, these were lower turnout elections than presidentials, and that changes the electorate. You know, wh- President Biden certainly has a lot of issues that he has with his brand, mm-hmm. but so does President Trump. We're going to see if that's even the rematch we wind up seeing. That's Domenico Montanaro joining us from Miami. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. There are schools across the country that are dropping a day of school every week. Seven percent of school districts in the U.S. are now just four days long. In Missouri, it's 30 percent of districts. In Colorado, it's 67 percent. Sarah Gonzalez from our Planet Money podcast explains why. A few years ago, the Warren County R3 school district in Missouri kept losing teachers, like 50 teachers a year to the next district over, which pays more. We just couldn't compete. So the superintendent, Greg Klingensmith, asked voters twice to raise taxes so they could increase teacher pay, which earned him a little reputation around town. They like to tease me as a Dr. Kling on my money. Kling on my money or something like that. It was just fun. (laughs) Voters rejected both tax increases. One thing we value here is low taxes. And so you just, okay, what what can we do? Greg decided he can cut out an entire day of school every week. He still pays teachers the same amount. They just get three-day weekends all the time now. And to understand how that free day off gets spent in most places, we went to a true expert in another district. Oh, hi, I'm Kennedy Montgomery and I'm nine. Kennedy is a big Texas Rangers fan, loves pink, soccer, and she is a proud straight-A fourth grader. I never fall behind. Ooh, they like that. Mm Mm-hmm. In China Spring, Texas, there is no school on Fridays anymore. Instead, she gets dropped off at a church, which she says is not fun. My favorite part is when we go to the library and watch a movie. Oh, you get to watch a movie? Yes, every Friday. We usually go there twice, and sometimes we don't finish the movie, but last time we did watch two movies. So it's like really definitely not like school. No, it's way different. It's daycare, and it costs money. It's hard financially because... It's like $45 a, a Friday for me to go. Yeah, $45 every Friday. This is Kennedy's mom, Jessica Montgomery. It's just to keep your kid alive. China Spring voters also wouldn't raise taxes to pay teachers more. And now the community basically gets like 20% less education for their community with their tax dollars. So the taxes are the same. Everyone just gets less out of it now. If the tax hike had gone through, homeowners with, take a house worth $200,000, would have paid less than $60 extra a year. 
Kennedy's mom now pays $1,260 extra a year in this Friday childcare. And this is kind of a tax. So this is definitely a tax on parents. Paul Thompson is an economics professor at Oregon State University. And he says even though some smaller, more rural school districts moved to four-day school weeks years ago, Paul says it's spreading really fast now and mostly based on anecdotal evidence from a neighboring district that this totally helps teacher retention. They say applications are up you know, four times what they normally are for teaching vacancies. And using that as kind of suggestive evidence, like, oh, this was great you know, for our district. But Paul says there is something happening already that is starting to undercut the four-day school week as a recruitment tool. Um, you know, so we get these contagion effects. Contagion. One district does it, then the neighboring district does it too. There are entire clusters now in Texas, Missouri, Montana, where every district anywhere near you only offers four days of instruction. There is no other option. And when you get these cluster contagion effects, schools lose their competitive advantage. I mean, ultimately, if we only have four-day school weeks, teachers aren't choosing where to work based on the school schedule. They're choosing over what monetary benefits schools are offering. Yeah, so districts might be right back where they started, trying to appeal to teachers based on salary. It's just school is four days now instead of five. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. And you can hear about how four-day school weeks affect student achievement and crime on NPR's Planet Money program. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Major cities such as New York and Chicago are struggling to find ways to house large number of migrant refugees who the governor of Texas sent north on a bus. That story is coming up in about six minutes. And then at 444, how to speak like a native-born Bostonian. In sports, it's a battle between Boston and Philadelphia teams tonight. The Celts take on the 76ers in Philly. Both teams are 5-1 and one so far this season. Tip-off time is 7 p.m. The New England Revolution look to stay alive in the MLS playoffs. They host the Philadelphia Union also at 7 o'clock tonight. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds overnight. Then for tomorrow, clouds and rain off and on through the day with temperatures in the mid-40s. 42 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the University of New England in Maine with a mission to support healthy people, healthy communities, and a healthy planet. UNE.edu. I'm Scott Tong. The National Rifle Association has tremendous sway in Washington. Our series on gun culture looks at how the NRA gained so much influence. The most important thing that people have misunderstood is that its power has never been a foregone conclusion. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Abortion rights were a winning issue in several state elections last night. Ohio sent the clearest message of the issue's importance more than a year after the Supreme Court overturned any federal protection of the right to abortion. As White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre made clear this afternoon, Democrats are looking to take advantage of those wins to drive voter turnout for next year's races for the White House. President Biden's values and agenda won big across the country last night. 
In Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and in Virginia, voters once again sided with President Biden's agenda to stand up for fundamental freedoms and build an economy for the middle class and protect democracy. Ohio has a Republican governor and legislature and is now the seventh state since Roe v. Wade was ended last year where voters have supported abortion rights in ballot initiatives. Democrats running for election in New Jersey held on to large majorities in both houses of that state legislature. From member station WNYC, here's Nancy Solomon. Conservative Republican candidates focus their campaigns on opposing protections for transgender students and offshore wind projects and were expected to pick up seats. But Democrats held on to the same number of seats in the Senate and expanded their majority in the Assembly. The conservative Republican truck driver who defeated the Senate president two years ago lost his re-election to a Democrat. New Jersey Republicans continue to struggle with conservative candidates who win primaries but do poorly in the general election. And Democratic turnout benefits from their support of the use of mail-in ballots, a strategy Republicans have mostly rejected. For NPR News, I'm Nancy Solomon in Maplewood, New Jersey. On Wall Street, stocks finished mixed today. The Dow lost 40 points. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Amtrak and its partners on Beacon Hill are getting more than $16 billion to improve the busy Northeast Corridor between Boston and Washington, D.C. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the money comes from President Biden's 2021 infrastructure law. Amtrak will use the funds to repair and modernize bridges and tunnels along the route, some of which are 150 years old. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is among the agencies working with Amtrak. MassDOT's Rail and Transit Administrator Meredith Schlesinger says the funding will help advance rail projects in the state. Improvements on this corridor will benefit the MassDOT-supported inland route to make infrastructure improvements between Worcester and Springfield so that we can have service between Boston and Springfield and New Haven to then connect to New York. A representative from Amtrak says it will take between 5 and 15 years to complete all the projects along the corridor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Governor Maura Healey says Massachusetts should do more to make health care affordable and equitable. Healey addressed the Health Policy Commission in Boston this morning and spoke with reporters afterwards. What's important here is that we do the work to update and modernize the tools given to the HPC and others to make sure we're driving down costs, we're reining in costs. We need to do that for residents. We need to do that for businesses. Healy stopped short of saying exactly what new powers state officials need to control medical costs. Mass General Brigham is teaming up with the healthcare arm of Best Buy to provide patients with medical monitoring equipment at home. Mass General says its home hospital service allows some patients to receive hospital-level care at home after they've received inpatient care at the hospital. Patients will wear armbands that transmit medical data, such as heart rates and oxygen levels, to health care providers. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. Cold tonight, down in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, rain through the day. Temperatures in the mid-40s tops. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere this Friday. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. Officials in major cities continue to struggle to find ways to house thousands of migrant refugees. Many of them are seeking asylum, and many of them have been bussed from the country's southern border by the governor of Texas. Big city mayors say they need a lot more help from the federal government specifically to provide housing and other services. Three reporters from around the country join us now to talk about how their cities are working to assist this swell of newcomers. And we're going to start in New York City with Liz Kim of WNYC. Hey, Liz. Hi, Scott. So New York has received the largest influx of buses from Texas, and Mayor Eric Adams initially welcomed them. But as this has gone on and continued, he has shifted his view. He's now going as far as to call this a crisis that may destroy New York. So what is the city's current plan to get through the winter? To understand how the city has been addressing the crisis, we should start out with New York City's unique legal obligations when it comes to the homeless. The city has what's called a right to shelter rule, and it applies to anyone who needs a place to sleep indoors. So what the city has done from the beginning is they have found those spaces. It's rented hotels. They've outfitted municipal and even private buildings, and they've also built massive tents. Currently, we have around 65,000 migrants in the city's shelter system. Migrants now make up more than half of the city's total residents in the shelter system. But what's happened now is that the mandate is becoming a draw for migrants. Mm. And that's on top of many reasons why immigrants want to come to New York City. The main ones being the fact that it's a large global city with good transportation and jobs. Now, New York is a sanctuary city and it offers a safety net for undocumented residents. And the mayor has been proud of that. He initially welcomed migrants, as you said. He stood in front of Port Authority bus terminal and he personally greeted migrants as they were coming off the bus. I mean, Liz, it is interesting how much Adams has shifted on this. Was there a particular moment you can point to when he went from from being welcoming to saying this is untenable and the city can't handle this anymore? It was when he realized that this was not just a temporary wave of new people coming into the city who needed housing and education. So now he and taxpayers are confronted with how much this obligation to house and take care of migrants is going to cost the city. The mayor has said that it could cost as much as $2 billion this year. So let's shift to Chicago and and Tessa Weinberg from WBEZ in Chicago. Tessa, it seems like it's fair to say this has been a little bit of a different situation in Chicago, right? That the city has really been struggling and overwhelmed in its attempts to try and find housing for people? Yes, definitely. We are out of space for folks here in Chicago. And Mayor Brandon Johnson has been trying to put forward this plan to create winterized tent camps uh, for the coming months. But that's been pretty contentious, hasn't it? Yes, it has been. They've been controversial, and we've not seen a single base camp actually constructed yet. 
but Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson's administration has said the city has few options to really try and quickly house people before winter sets in. The city has pitched these so-called base camps. They would look like large tent-like structures that could house thousands of people with the goal of moving people out of police station lobbies and into these new camps. In Chicago, we've had more than 20,000 migrants and asylum seekers arrive since August of last year, and we just simply do not have enough space in city shelters for everyone. There are more than 12,000 migrants in city shelters, and another 3,000 have been sleeping on the floors of police station lobbies and O'Hare Airport because the city simply does not have enough room. But even deciding on where these base camps should be located has led to fierce protests. It's already snowed in Chicago here, too, and here's what Mayor Brandon Johnson had to say recently. It snowed. But winter is not here yet. And so my goal is still to make sure that we have base camps before winter. The city has also hired a controversial private staffing firm called Garter World Federal Services to mm -hmm. construct and build these base camps. It's a company that Denver actually decided against using. And the recent waves of asylum seekers have also highlighted deep divisions in the city. Many communities have pushed back on having shelters for migrants in their neighborhoods, and residents of law and disinvested communities have said they want to see resources flowing into their neighborhoods, just like the city is putting toward housing and supporting thousands of asylum seekers. So let's actually talk a little more about Denver uh, with Rebecca Tauber of Colorado Public Radio's Denverite. Uh, Rebecca, uh, Tessa just said that Denver opted not to bring in a private company. Tell us how the city has been approaching this problem and how that's been working. Yeah, exactly. As Tessa said, right before our last mayor, Michael Hancock, left office in the summer, he backed off of a $40 million all-inclusive contract with Garda World, which is that big international company. That's in part because activists had concerns about the company's track record, and the contract also would have cut local nonprofits who have already been doing this work out of the picture. So that means the city is still running migrant operations in-house under a state of emergency in partnership with nonprofits and hotels. In the meantime, we have a new mayor, Mike Johnston, and he's in the process of considering proposals from a number of nonprofits to break up that work and keep it more local. The goal is to hand this work off to them, but that's still in the process. So Denver's definitely taking a different approach from other big cities by circumventing a big company. Mm -hmm. But it'll be interesting to see if that works better. We honestly don't know yet. I mean, the federal government has has tried to do several things to, to ease this problem. Uh, there's a pilot program the administration is kicking off this week in Chicago. It's designed to help new arrivals and shelters that are overwhelming the city apply for work authorizations to speed up that process. Um, but but what cities really want is money here, right? They've asked for $5 billion from the federal government. So I'm wondering what each city's general plan is to get through the next few months if there's no more resources coming from the federal government. Liz, let's start with you in New York. Well, Mayor Adams has already announced that if he does not get more help from the state and federal government, he has no choice but to order budget cuts. And he's, we're talking about draconian cuts. So that's going to be very interesting to see how that develops, because certainly New Yorkers are not prepared to see essential services cut. Mm -hmm. Tessa, what about Chicago? Chicago's really banking on more federal support coming through. We haven't heard budget cuts yet, but we're in the midst of uh, budget discussions and the cities acknowledge what they've budgeted for supporting migrants through next year is not going to be enough. So they need the extra help. And Rebecca, what is Denver's general plan? Similar to what Tessa said, we're in our budgeting process right now, too. And just between September, when the budget was initially announced to now, the mayor's staff has said 
they're already recalculating how much they might have to spend from reserves on this. And that's in in addition to softening sales tax revenue over the past couple months. So it's definitely worrisome to think about this is what you spend emergency reserves for. But what if that converges with something else? Denver has spent $31 million in the past year and only gotten around $13.5 million from the state and federal government. The governor and last mayor set up a fund for individual donations, but it's hard to imagine that'll fill all of the need. Checking in on just three of the many cities dealing with this this growing crisis. That was Rebecca Tauber with Colorado Public Radio's Denverite, Liz Kim with WNYC in New York, and Tessa Weinberg from WBEZ in Chicago. Thanks to all of you. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston accent is loved, hated, misunderstood, and mocked. It's a challenge for outsiders to attempt with any accuracy. It's steeped in history, and for some people, it's a lifelong badge of honor. As part of the Field Guide to Boston, WBUR Sharon Brody takes a closer listen. One great thing about Boston... The mix of longtime residents with a steady flow of newcomers. If you've just arrived, welcome. I've only lived here my entire adult life, so I'm not really a local. But if I were, I might sound like my friend Jerry O'Loughlin. Hi, Sharon. So you want to get the Fenway Park from Newton Corner? Jerry was born and raised in Boston and gives quintessentially Bostonian driving directions. Take a right, hot, hot right on there at the lights. You're on Marlboro Street. Go up the back of Marlboro Street. There's parking spaces there that uh, the meter shut off at 6 o'clock so you could save on parking. You won't have to pay the 50 bucks to park in a lot. Jerry sounds the way actors try to sound, but mostly fail, when they're playing characters from Boston. The authentic Boston accent is a wonder to behold. Just ask James Stanford. When it comes to linguistics research on this topic, he's known as the guy. <laughs> Okay, well, I don't know if I'm the guy, but uh, I do have some recent information to report about New England English. Stanford is chair of the linguistics department at Dartmouth College. In 2019, he published the most up-to-date scholarly study of Boston-area speech patterns. His research team collected data from over 1,600 New Englanders, including a bunch of recordings of people reading sentences designed to elicit the local twists on vowels and consonants. My father sometimes hides his boots by the road in the park. In this hot, sunny weather, I could fall down at the drop of a feather. Sue rode a tan horse to the farm. In the Boston accent extravaganza, the R is the star of the show. And we call this whole topic roticity. Roticity involves the pronunciation of the letter R. In rhotic speech, people pronounce the R. The classic Boston accent is non-rhotic. When you're non-rhotic, most of the time you don't pronounce R's when they follow a vowel. Exhibit A, my friend, former WBUR colleague, and exasperated Boston sports fan, Sarah Rose Brenner. Why aren't you better than this? Why even bother? I am just irrationally mad about how bad they are. But wait, there's more on the R. Then you can also get situations where you get R's inserted into places that other dialects of English don't have. Like the phrase, the idea of it, pronouncing that as the idea of it. This is called the intrusive R. I guess there's a certain towny swagger before a vowel. The R shows up uninvited for pizza. I hope that Mary bought coffee and pizza at the food shop. Yet another signature of the Boston accent? Linguists call it the lot 
thought merger. Words like lot, L-O-T, are pronounced more like thought. For example, I say comav and across and stockyard. But locals? Go all the way up to comav, cross comav, stay on Cheston Hill Ave, all the way across. The stockyard will be on your left. Now, the Boston accent is complex, and linguists have documented loads of additional details. I mean, James Stanford's book runs more than 350 pages. Still, somehow, that R keeps stealing the spotlight. Well, whatever. Um, But irregardless. So what exactly is the deal? Where did that Boston R come from? We can trace those differences back to what we call the founder effect, which is when the first English-speaking settlers began arriving. Stanford says in the 1600s, when settlers got here from the southeast region of England, that area was going through some language changes. Non-rhotic speech was gaining momentum. It was seen as having more prestige. People in the Boston area were staying in close touch with those southeast Englanders, and the accent stuck. Even today, 400 years later, we can still see that founder effect of the English in this region. Stanford says for a lot of people, sounding unmistakably from Boston matters, like really matters. And so there's a local pride to it that we heard again and again. They counted that as part of their local Boston identity. Stanford says that pride is helping preserve the Boston accent, unlike in other parts of the country where regional accents are fading because of generational and societal changes. Stanford says he expects the Boston accent to thrive for decades to come, which gives us all plenty of time to celebrate this. So you want to get to Harvard Stadium? All right, you're going to bang a Yui, come down to right and center at the lights there where old Rourke's Farmers used to be. Take a ride on Western Ave, past Star Market. Seriously, what's not to love? Can't miss it. You'll be all set. Have a good time. To learn more about what makes Boston Boston, go to WBUR.org slash field guide. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sarah Rose Brenna. <clears throat> For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Stepping Stone, for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at SteppingStone.org. This is WBUR. Clouds roll in tonight. Winds pick up. Temperatures fall to about 34. Tomorrow, only in the mid-40s again, with plenty of rain, especially after noontime. Friday, cloudy, a little bit milder, breaking into the mid-50s. That one wasn't so good. You're part of the WBUR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's coming up this Monday, November 13th, from 4 to 6.30. Details are at wbur.org slash open meetings. It's 4.50. WBUR supporters include Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Elsa Chang. The crisis in Israel and Gaza threatens to embroil the international Olympic movement. With the opening of the Summer Games in Paris eight months away, Russian officials say their country's suspension should be lifted. They point to what Moscow describes as a double standard in the IOC's treatment of Israel. NPR's Brian Mann joins us now to explain. Hey, Brian. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, so just remind us why Russia was suspended in the first place. 
Well, Russia's Olympic committees faced kind of a rolling suspension really since 2017, first because of doping scandals. But last month, the International Olympic Committee issued a separate suspension linked to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And Moscow sports officials absorbed Olympic sports organizations in some of the occupied territories inside Ukraine. The IOC says that violated the rights of Ukraine's Olympic organization and thus violated the Olympic Charter. So they suspended Russia again because of this ruling. Also, the Russian Olympic Committee won't share in funding from Olympic events, including the sale of broadcast rights. Right. Okay. And now Moscow is appealing the IOC's ruling. So how do Israel and Gaza come into this argument? Right. So after the escalation of violence in Israel and Gaza began last month with the Hamas attack, the IOC issued a strongly worded statement saying Israeli athletes should not face any kind of backlash or bias. The IOC promised swift action if Israeli athletes are discriminated against. Russian officials now argue that this stance represents a double standard. They say Russian athletes are facing intense international pressure over the Ukraine war, while Israeli athletes are protected while this fighting continues in Gaza. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov called the difference outrageous and uh, says it reflects pro-Western bias by the IOC. So now, as you say, the Russians have filed this appeal. And how has the IOC responded so far? An IOC spokesperson issued a statement saying the Russia-Ukraine situation is unique and, quote, cannot be compared to any other war or conflict. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, remember, was not provoked by any kind of violence like the Hamas attack. Mm-hmm. I spoke about this with Jules Boykoff. He's a professor at Pacific University who studies the way politics shape the Olympics. He predicted the IOC is going to face growing questions over Israel's ground war in Gaza. Palestine is a participant in the Olympics. They have their own National Olympic Committee, and it remains to be seen whether territory is actually captured by Israel and kept. That would be in clear violation in the same way that what Russia has done. And Elsa Boykov says what's clear now is that the increasingly volatile global situation is affecting the wider Olympic movement. When you decide to live by the quizzical myth that the Olympics are not political, this sort of thing is going to happen. In reality, sports are politics by other means, and that is becoming ever more clear the closer we get to Paris 2024. It's going to be a heck of a summer in Paris, that's for sure. And Paris has already, of course, seen massive pro-Palestinian protests in recent weeks. Right. Can we just step back for a moment, Brian, because there is deep history here around Israel and Palestinians and the Olympics. Can you just remind us of that context? Yeah, in 1972, a militant wing of the Palestine Liberation Organization took members of the Israeli Olympic team hostage at the Munich Summer Games. Eleven Israeli athletes were killed. So what we're seeing now ahead of the Paris Games is French officials saying they're going to do everything possible to avoid violence, including putting 35,000 uniformed police on the streets. Wow. That is NPR's Brian Mann. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. The Republican presidential debate taking place tonight in Florida is mostly about the fight to be seen as a viable alternative to Donald Trump, and it could be a make-or-break moment for Nikki Haley. The former South Carolina governor and United Nations ambassador has been showing stronger-than-expected potential in some of the early voting states. NPR's Sarah McCammon recently traveled to New Hampshire, where Haley has been making a big push for Republican voters who want someone new. At a diner in Londonderry, New Hampshire last week, Nikki Haley opened her stump speech with a bold move. Who has decided who they're going to be with? Really? That's all? I got that much work to do? Seriously? 
Haley seemed undeterred by the lackluster response from some of the voters who'd crowded into booths and around tables to hear her speak. She was campaigning alongside New Hampshire's Republican Governor Chris Sununu. He has yet to endorse anyone, but he's made it clear he wants a nominee who is not Donald Trump. Almost by definition, most voters who come to Republican primary campaign events in New Hampshire are at least open to that idea. David Belchunas is 70 and still working as a bartender. What the inflation? I don't have a choice. Belchunas says he usually votes for Republicans, but he wouldn't vote for Trump again. And he hopes other New Hampshire voters agree. First of all, like the, you know, I don't believe the polls. And, you know, everybody, Trump, 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 Trump. I'm way over that, you know. He had his time. Let's get some, you know, fresh brains in there, fresh ideas, and go from there. At Haley's next stop in Nashua, Terry Cates said she agrees. I think he needs to go. He's had his time, and, and he's more of a, of a distraction for the country. Cates and her husband live part-time in Florida. They say they love Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, who's also running for the GOP nomination. He's done a great job with Florida, but he doesn't have the experience that Nikki does with foreign affairs. And it's the foreign affairs that right now I'm concerned about. DeSantis had been widely seen as the strongest potential rival to Trump, but there are signs that Haley may be moving into that role. Late last month, the Des Moines Register's Iowa poll showed Haley tying with DeSantis in the first-in-the-nation caucus state. She's also showing strength in New Hampshire. Former Republican strategist Rick Wilson says DeSantis has been a disappointment to some Republican donors. He'll be Trump without the craziness. Well, it turned out he was Trump without the charisma, not the craziness. Wilson says some of those donors are now eyeing Haley. Republican pollster John McHenry with North Star Opinion Research says if Haley can make a very strong showing in Iowa, New Hampshire, and her home state of South Carolina, she could have a narrow path to the nomination. It's not overly likely, given sort of the cult-like following he seems to have in the, among some primary voters. But I do think Governor Haley has probably the best shot of the rest of the field. McHenry says Haley would need to continue standing out in the debates and hope that more of her rivals drop out, like former Vice President Mike Pence did recently. But Rick Wilson says even with an appetite among some Republicans for a Trump alternative, candidates still have to contend with his base. What do we know about the Republican base? What is their most powerful immune response? Anyone who attacks Trump must be destroyed. While Haley has traded barbs with DeSantis, she's largely avoided going after the frontrunner. But that can't go on forever, Wilson says. If she's going to win a race and, and divide the race up, at some point she's not going to be sniping at Ron DeSantis or Chris Christie or Vivek Ramaswamy. She has to go at Donald Trump, and the base will destroy her. While Haley and four others face off in Miami, Trump is once again skipping tonight's debate and holding his own event not far away. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Nashua, New Hampshire. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. 
From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka was compelled to testify in her father's civil fraud trial today. New York's Attorney General explained why. Ivanka Trump secured loans to obtain favorable terms based on fraudulent statements of financial condition. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, and we'll have more from the courthouse coming up. Also, the war between Israel and Hamas is taking a toll on the economy of Jerusalem. As you can see walking through the city, there's not many people. There's not much traffic. People are scared to come down. More from shopkeepers struggling to keep their businesses alive in the ancient city. And five years after one of America's worst wildfires, the slow and expensive recovery continues in Paradise, California. It could reveal what's ahead on the scorched island of Maui. It's 5.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. is weighing in on the matter of Gaza's future. The Biden administration says Gaza should be unified with the West Bank under the Palestinian Authority once the conflict comes to an end there. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports the latest comments come a day after the White House cautioned Israel against reoccupying the region. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says setting the conditions for durable peace in the region still needs to be worked out. What exactly does that governance structure look like and when does it get put in place and who are the players that are going to help adapt that? Those are all the questions we're asking ourselves and the questions we're asking of our partners. Speaking to world leaders in Japan, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said diplomatic efforts need to begin immediately to implement a stable peace accord. He says any agreement must include, quote, a sustained mechanism for reconstruction in Gaza and a pathway to Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in states of their own. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Even as five candidates seeking the Republican presidential nomination hit the debate stage tonight in Florida, the man looming large over the party will be hosting his own event just a few miles away. Former President Donald Trump will again not be attending the third GOP debate. So far, he's planning a campaign rally in Hialeah, an area important to South Florida's Cuban community. Trump's Republican presidential rivals include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramswamy. 
Ivanka Trump, daughter of former President Donald Trump, took the witness stand today. As NPR's Amanda Bastille reports, she testified in a civil fraud trial in Manhattan that accuses her father of inflating his net worth. Ivanka Trump spent the morning answering questions about meetings and negotiations she was a part of during her time at the Trump Organization. Ivanka left the Trump Organization to become a White House advisor during the years her father was president. Still, the state attorney general's team wanted to hear from her about how certain financial statements were used to negotiate better lending terms. Ivanka Trump is not a defendant in this case, but her father Donald Trump and her brothers Eric and Donald Jr. are. The attorney general's team is planning to end their case after Ivanka's testimony concludes, and the Trump legal team can begin their defense next. The trial is expected to wrap up in December. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, inside the New York County Supreme Court. Some signs of movement ahead of an anticipated walkout by tens of thousands of culinary workers in Las Vegas. Word the union representing employees at Caesars has reached a tentative agreement to help avert a strike. Deals, however, have not yet been reached with MGM Resorts International or Wynn Resorts. A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 40 points. The Nasdaq rose 10 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Three Korean nationals are facing federal sex crime charges that they ran a prostitution ring out of at least four properties in Cambridge and Watertown. WBUR Simone Rios has more. Authorities say the prostitution ring involved Asian women who were flown to work in brothels in Massachusetts and Virginia. The so-called brothels include high-end apartments in Watertown's Arsenal Yards development and in North Cambridge. Acting U.S. Attorney Joshua Levy says prostitution customers include unnamed politicians, tech and pharma executives, and military officers who paid regular membership fees and used text messages to arrange appointments. This commercial sex ring was built on secrecy and exclusivity, catering to a wealthy and well-connected clientele, and business was booming until today. Levy says sex clients used a website similar to Yelp to review the sex workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Criminal justice reform advocates are applauding Governor Moore Healy's changes to the state's clemency guidelines. The updates mean more incarcerated people in Massachusetts could get a chance at parole or commutation. Attorney Patty Dejanus is a member of the Clemency Task Force for the state's Bar Association. She tells Radio Boston the governor will allow more factors to be weighed when considering clemency. Governor Healy has explicitly addressed that in these new guidelines. Other big changes are that Governor Healy is interested in fixing systemic injustices, not just a narrow focus on how many programs did you do, but all of the surrounding circumstances. Lawmakers are considering legislation to expand the state's parole board and to end automatic sentences of life without parole for first-degree murder convictions. House Speaker Ron Mariano says the Heinz Convention Center in Boston could be used as an overflow shelter site for families in Massachusetts who are experiencing homelessness. Massachusetts is nearing its cap of 7,500 families that Governor Healy says the state can handle in the shelter system. Mariano told reporters today that legislative leaders have talked uh, about the Heinz among several other sites around the state that might take in families. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight. Gusty winds, temperatures falling to about 34 degrees. Tomorrow only in the mid-40s again. Plenty of rain, especially after noontime. 42 now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. New York has rested its $250 million civil fraud case against Donald Trump. Over six weeks of testimony, the state attorney general's office has presented evidence of a conspiracy by the former president and his company to lie about the value of their assets. The state's final witness was a key person in Trump's business and political orbit, his daughter Ivanka. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been in the courtroom following it all and joins us now. Hey, Andrea. Hey, Scott. So the AG is finished with its main case. What's the general outline of their evidence? So the case, as we all know, ended with the well-observed testimony of Donald Trump and his three older children. But mostly, we've heard from Trump employees, appraisers, accountants, and bankers. And bit by bit, the evidence has accrued. Donald Trump cared deeply about his statements of net worth, and his employees undertook to massage the numbers, so they turned out the way he wanted. So let's talk about Ivanka Trump. She is not a defendant, so today she testified as a witness. How would you describe her testimony? So unlike her father, Ivanka Trump is disciplined. She didn't go off on political diatribes and was careful to say she always tried to be accurate. Unlike her brothers, she seemed on top of the deals she was involved in. Mm -hmm. That is until she went to the White House in 2017. But like her brothers and her father, when presented with emails and documents with her name on them, her most repeated refrain was, I don't recall or I don't specifically remember. What do we know about what was in those key emails and documents? So this is where things got interesting. The AG showed emails from Ivanka Trump to various bankers trying to get loans for projects in Chicago, Florida, and Washington, D.C. And when she went to the regular commercial real estate divisions of banks, she was told the banks didn't really want to lend for resorts and hotels in the wake of the financial crisis. That translated to high interest rates, like 9%. So Ivanka's husband, Jared Kushner, she testified, introduced her to the private wealth division of Deutsche Bank, and she was able to get rates way lower in the 2% range. But there was a catch. Donald Trump had to guarantee the loans and certify them year over year with his statements of financial condition. And this is a key clarification here in this case. These are the statements that the judge has already found to be false? Correct. And what's important is that if the AG shows what the Trumps saved by basing their loans on false statements, the judge can order Donald Trump to pay it all back to the state, Mm. potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. One interesting side note that came out today, Ivanka Trump was still trying to get a very favorable loan for $50 million in 2016 when her father was running for president. The amount she sought was very close to the amount of money Donald Trump was putting into his campaign. The Trump's lawyers cross-examined Ivanka Trump. Uh, What did she say during their questioning? They asked her about her work on Doral and the old post office, and Ivanka was able to slip in at least twice that the Doral deal was offered to her as she was giving birth to her oldest child, Arabella, and that the property had sentimental affection for her father. She said he had gone there with his father, Fred Trump, and later with her mother, Ivana Trump, Ivanka Trump said the Deutsche Bankers were very happy with their loan on Doral and that the old post office, they thought the old post office was the crown jewel of their investment portfolio. Even though under New York law, you're not allowed to lie as part of your business model, even if no one was harmed, Mm -hmm. this is exactly what we expect to hear more of from the defense case, which starts Monday and will go into mid-December. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein joining us from the streets of New York City. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you, Scott.
It's the five-year anniversary of the Camp Fire, one of the worst wildfire disasters in the U.S. It destroyed close to 19,000 structures, killed 85 people, and basically wiped the northern California town of Paradise off the map. Only the August wildfire in Lahaina on Maui was deadlier. And five years on, the slow and expensive recovery in Paradise could be a lesson for survivors in Lahaina. NPR's Kirk Sigler is just back from Paradise, and he joins us now for more. Hey, Kirk. Hey, Elsa. So I know that you covered what happened in Lahaina as well, but you've been reporting on Paradise for the last five years. Can you just tell us how much of the town has been rebuilt at this point? Right. Well, these are estimates, but they're getting close to about 30 percent of their pre-fire population up there. Wait, just 30 percent? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's after several billion dollars in aid, right? You know, you have to remember, this was a town of 27,000 people, and almost 90% of it was leveled by the fire. Right. Well, when you were talking to survivors of the campfire who have returned, what did they say to you about what it's been like for them to process what happened in Lahaina? Well, Lahaina brought it all back. Let's listen to Cindy Foudry. She's still coping with trauma five years after the campfire. And my heart goes out to the people in Hawaii right now because we could totally relate to that. I mean, we didn't have to jump in the ocean, but trying to get off of this mountain was really difficult during the fire. And so, Elsa, there are definitely some similarities between Lahaina and Paradise. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're both among the few places around that locals could afford, for starters. Yeah, but as your reporting and others reporting have shown, also maybe higher risk of wildfire damage there, right? Right. And people like Cindy Foudry still don't have many other options. And, you know, that's really delaying recovery. Foudry is still living in a camper on the lot where her mobile home burned down five years ago. Let's hear more from her now. It's a slow process either way, because when you're starting from scratch, you can only do what you can do at that moment and work forward. I'm hoping that I'll have a home on my lot by next year. Fudre is planning to stay in this camper through the winter, but even people with more money got frustrated after the fire. They wanted to rebuild quickly until the scope of what was in front of them settled in. I mean, it took nearly a year just to remove all the hazardous debris before it was even safe to rebuild. And homes like this that are being rebuilt now have to meet tougher wildfire codes. Roads everywhere are still being paved. Utility crews are also burying all the new power lines underground. So many streets are blocked by flaggers. You just want to get turned around? I'm going to turn around, yeah. I can wait. After a a U-turn, I pass cleared out lots full of stumps. A million burnt trees were removed from here. Actually, a lot of for sale signs. And soon, I'm at Jody Jones's new place. You can see Sawmill Peak over there, which you could never see the mountains on that side before because the forest was so thick. Jones is the former mayor, the face of the crisis around the world in the weeks after the fire. Back then, there were questions about whether Paradise could or even should rebuild. But today, Jones says it's becoming one of the safest towns in California. Certainly, we're building a resilient town that the people here care a lot about. Not easy in a rural area where there was already a housing and labor shortage, and now there's inflation and high interest rates. Jones has been telling leaders in Lahaina that a disaster recovery these days can take decades. It's a ton of work. It's not going to happen overnight. But considering it's only been five years and we had a pandemic in the middle of that, what we've accomplished is just a miracle. 
Before the campfire, Paradise typically built 10 homes a year. Now they're averaging about 600 with much tougher zoning. Town leaders tried to account for the rising costs by streamlining permitting, even offering free pre-approved design plans. Colette Curtis is Paradise's recovery coordinator. We like to say that we are existing in the largest construction site in the world um, because there is construction everywhere. Curtis knows the new construction is pricing some out. Housing costs were way lower when most of the homes here were built in the 1950s and 60s. But you can't just put everything back how it was or there could be another campfire. We could spend our time as human beings running from those disasters uh, continually or we can spend our time learning how to live in these places in a resilient and safe way. Which costs a lot of money. And it turns out a lot of the aid in the months after a disaster, the millions pouring into Paradise or Lahaina that make the headlines, most of it goes to infrastructure, not rebuilding private homes. We're not good at this uh, in our country. Ed Mayer runs the Housing Authority for Butte County, which includes Paradise. And our history of disasters, and no fault of their own, FEMA sort of has a one-size-fits-all approach. FEMA typically tries to help people find temp housing while they figure out how to rebuild. But Mayer says that doesn't work because in states like California and Hawaii, there's been an affordable housing shortage for years. And the degree to which you can't meet your immediate need, you're going to be working with either homeless or folks in some kind of transitional status. And it can go on for years. Bernadette Grant feels like she's been in transition for years. Yeah, so I, I got burned out of paradise and the three places I had lived before that, plus my mom's house who had lived there for over 50 years. A Grant and her partner Richard Fox eventually decided to try building on their own on a piece of property she owns outside paradise that didn't burn. They're now clearing out the trees that pose a fire risk and milling them into lumber. Taking a break, Fox points to a dense stand of pines killed by beetles. You know, fire will just rage through that. I mean, you want it where you can ride a horse through it, is what they tell us. The couple says a lack of workers has definitely slowed the recovery down, but also greed. People here are still angry it took survivors as long as it has to get settlement money from the utility PG&E, whose downed power line started the campfire. A lot of people haven't even been paid off or all the damage has been done to them already. I mean, and that's ridiculous. Five years, they lost everything. Mm. Well, we're back now with NPR's Kirk Sigler in the studio. And Kirk, I can see now why it has taken so long to rebuild in paradise. I mean, five years just to get to 30% rebuilt. The thing I guess I'm wondering is the town is still susceptible to future wildfires, right? Like, how are the residents thinking about that? Yeah, so Grant and Fox, who we just heard from at the end of the piece there, they've got a pretty interesting response to this question that we're posing a lot as reporters in this era of climate change, and I think we're hearing a lot as well. Look what happened in Hawaii. I mean, it's a city. It's, you know, whole place built burnt up. There's no place on earth that's perfect and completely safe. And, you know, also Grant told me it's a leap of faith, but paradise is home. That was NPR's Kirk Sigler, and this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the United Auto Workers has now set its sight on unionizing foreign auto plants in the South after it got deals with the big three U.S. automakers. That story and much more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off. 
integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Not a lot of movement on Wall Street by the end of the day today. A slight dip for the Dow. The index fell about a tenth of a percent. S&P rose about a tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq gained just under a tenth of a percent. More business news coming up at 6.30. Amtrak is cutting its fares for travel between December 4th and March 15th. Sale prices are in effect from now until November 15th. For example, one-way coach tickets from Boston to Providence are as low as $4 in some cases. One-way tickets to New York start at $25. Tickets to Washington, D.C. are as low as $29. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Should have a cloudy night ahead, windy again, temperatures in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, some showers around, especially tomorrow afternoon, clouds through the day, temperatures in the mid-40s tops. 42 degrees in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Are the giants of technology more likely to save humankind or accelerate its end? Naomi Alderman tackles that question in her new novel, The Future. Her last novel, The Power, was a bestseller that became a series on Amazon about girls developing electrical powers. This one tackles the apocalypse. Naomi Alderman, welcome back to All Things Considered. It's great to be here. Some of your main characters seem like thinly veiled versions of Elon (laughs) Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and the like. What made you decide to look at the tech giants of today through this apocalyptic lens? I just want to say for legal reasons, they are definitely, <laughs> definitely not identifiable not. For as sure. anybody who could sue me with one of their many billions of dollars. Duly so. noted. Yeah. Uh, so I have worked in technology for many years. Um, I have a big uh, game that I make called Zombies Run, which mm-hmm. is like a fitness app, which has been going for more than a decade now and has 10 million players. So I've been around the world of tech for a long time. And I think over the past 20 years or so, those of us who have been working in technology all that time have seen it go from the little kind of upstart industry that could, that can really bring people together and make a difference into, oh, now it's enormous mega corporations Mm. that don't seem to be interested in really helping the world. So certainly that's been in my mind for a while. In 2017, I, along with lots of other people, read uh, there was a brilliant piece in The New Yorker about uh, the tech billionaires building bunkers to oh, help yeah. them survive. Oh, yeah, in New Zealand yeah. and elsewhere. Right. And I think everybody read that and went, oh, 
Um, yeah, what about us? What about everyone else? Right, right. What about us? Now, number one, fundamentally evil. Number two, evil in this very particular way where you say, oh, you believe that the rest of us could suffer and you would still be okay. Hmm. And I would like to point out to you that that is incorrect. Hmm. That there is no arc that you can get on and you can escape and everybody else will die and you'll be fine because fundamentally the living through that and deciding to do that instead of using your billions and billions of dollars to help people is what will ultimately destroy you. Okay, so this book immerses us in just ahead of the curve tech and also immerses us in a lot of ancient stories. There is indigenous knowledge, there are ancient Greek references. One story that comes up more than any other is from the Bible. It's the story of Lot and his family. And this is a tale that involves destruction of the city of Sodom. There is incredible sexual violence. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. Why was this story in particular on your mind? When I heard about these billionaires building their bunkers, I immediately thought of Lot. So this is a story that is about how you cannot escape from a terrible situation. If you think that, oh no, I'm powerful, I can escape, I can go to my bunker, I'm gonna be all right, you just have to know that you take it with you. Hmm. On a more broad level, I think Bible stories, particularly the stories of Genesis, I grew up reading them in the original Hebrew because I grew up very religious Jewish. And it seems to me that those stories are the foundations of what we might call Western civilization now. And we have sort of seeded them to religious education. Hmm. So you learn those stories if you have a strong biblical schooling where you're maybe taught that all of this is literally true. But actually, they're incredibly important stories. So like everybody can talk about the lesson of Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun. Right. But unless you're religious, you don't know the lesson of Lot. Correct, yes. So this is our culture. It doesn't just belong to people who are biblical literalists. These are treasure troves of insight into human psychology written by people who really did know people who lived in caves and understand what happens when a whole city gets destroyed. And I think it would be a good idea for us to take advantage of the culture that's been passed down to us. You have a gift, much like your mentor Margaret Atwood, of imagining a world that is just close enough to our own to feel plausible and just different enough to be interesting. You said that this book was actually informed by a trip that Atwood encouraged you to take to the Arctic. But I wonder, is finding that version of the near future intuitive? Or do you have to like adjust the dial sort of like hot and cold taps to get it just right? There is a process that I do pretty much all the time of trying to figure out how things could be different to what they currently are and how far I can stretch it before it starts to feel implausible to me. I find that delightful. Hmm. Just there, there are so many worlds that are so close to where we are right now. There's a paragraph at the very end of the book that to me almost sounds like a manifesto. It doesn't give anything away. Um, will you read from page 414? I will. And I would also say that just to clangingly name drop. This was certainly inspired by a conversation that I was lucky enough to have with Ursula Le Guin oh. uh, a couple of years before she died. Hmm. 
Nothing can be permanently settled or solved. No state is perfect. No utopia exists, but that it leaves someone out. All we can be is alert, like fox, to the changing winds. To ask ourselves, in each new situation, what would we hate anyone to do to us? And who have we forgotten? To exist in motion, falling forward, trying to bend our own histories toward what is fair and kind, what is sensible and good. We will keep failing, but final success was never the point. Naomi Alderman, is that your personal view? Yes, I think the idea that we could reach a point where all human problems are solved is um, the kind of illusion that stops us from trying to do anything. And fine, at some problems are just going to have to be moved around like a bubble of air underneath the wallpaper. Sometimes it will be here, sometimes it will be there. But even that work of noticing who we've left out, trying to bring them in and again and again, that is utopia. The process is the destination. Living by those values is what we have. Do you find that reassuring or frustrating? I find it very reassuring. All right. I'm going to tell you a bit of um, Jewish stuff. Please. <laughs> so I grew up very religious. And there's a, there's a saying, Lo alecha which means it's not up to you to complete the work, but neither are you free to refrain from it which is that we don't have to worry ourselves about some destination far in the future, all the problems are solved. No, just start today. Go outside your house and pick up a piece of litter. Start where you are and do something. And if we all do that, things will be immeasurably better. And some final state of perfection is not, is not the point. If anything, evolution or God or whatever, thought that perfection was important, we wouldn't have ended up so imperfect. So it's all fine. Don't let the best be the enemy of the good, right? Naomi Alderman, her new book is The Future. It's been so wonderful talking with you. Thank you. And you, delightful. I'll have to publish another book so I can come on as quickly as possible. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Shopkeepers in Jerusalem are trying to keep their businesses running against the backdrop of the war between Israel and Hamas. We'll take you to Jerusalem in just about six minutes on WBUR. In sports, it's a battle between Boston and Philadelphia teams tonight. Celtics take on the 76ers in Philly. Both teams are 5-1 and one so far this season. Tip-off is at 7 o'clock. The New England Revolution look to stay alive in Major League Soccer playoffs. They host the Philadelphia Union, also at seven tonight. If the Revs lose, they're out of the playoffs. If they win, they'll play a third and deciding game in Philadelphia on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston is Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah, three performances November 24th through 26th. Handelandheiden.org. And Walden Local Meat partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com I'm Scott Tong. The National Rifle Association has tremendous sway in Washington. Our series on gun culture looks at how the NRA gained so much influence. The most important thing that people have misunderstood is that its power has never been a foregone conclusion. 
That's Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Republican presidential contenders debate for a third time tonight in Miami, with one big exception. NPR's Domenico Montanaro reports on how this factors into the strategies of those trying to defeat Donald Trump, the party frontrunner. Trump is once again foregoing the Republican debates. He refuses to sign a pledge to back whomever wins the nomination. And with him leading by huge margins in the polls, his team sees no advantage in it. On the debate stage will be just five candidates who met the Republican National Committee's polling and fundraising benchmarks. It's the smallest stage yet, and the ones to watch are Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor. Expect the Israel-Hamas war to be a focus since there hasn't been a debate since the war began, and that could be an advantage for Haley, who was Trump's ambassador to the United Nations. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Ohio has become the 24th state to legalize the sale and use of recreational marijuana. From Ohio Public Radio, Joe Ingalls tells us voters there passed a law that would make pot legal for those 21 and older. Tom Heron with the Committee to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol says Ohioans see the effect legal marijuana has had in neighboring Michigan. Ohio voters spoke loudly, they spoke clearly and decisively. When they passed issue two in a 14-point landslide victory. But the law will likely face changes. Leaders of Ohio's Republican-led legislature are already signaling they'll change some key provisions of the new law. For NPR News, I'm Joe Ingalls in Columbus. Shares of electric truck maker Rivian rose today after the company raised its production forecast for the year. Rivian also announced its exclusive four-year contract with Amazon is coming to an end, and the company plans to sell its EV delivery trucks to other companies. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Medway family that was trapped in Gaza for more than three weeks says they're grateful to be back home in Massachusetts. They spoke earlier today with WBUR's Deborah Becker. Abud Okal, his wife Wafa Abu Zeda, and their one-year-old son Yusuf went to visit relatives in Gaza in September and were trapped there after the war broke out between Israel and Hamas. Okal says he's still processing his family's ordeal in Gaza, but he's thankful to be home. I don't think we would be out without the help and support from everyone that supported us here in Massachusetts locally, from the community, as well as family and friends and, and elected officials. Okal says his relief is tempered by worries about family members still trapped in Gaza. He says he'll continue to try to help them get home as well. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The fifth and final Woburn High School football player accused of assaulting a teammate two years ago has been sentenced for his role in the attack. The Boston Globe reports that the juvenile was sentenced to a year of probation and ordered to take anger management courses. The judge also ordered the young man to stay away from the teenager he attacked and that person's family. A woman is in custody after police say she stabbed two female relatives in Stoneham. Police arrived at the home just after 8 this morning to find the two injured women. Both were taken to local hospitals with non-life-threatening injuries. A new Harvard study finds that giving more workplace flexibility to older employees can reduce their risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Dr. Lisa Berkman of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health was lead author of the study. She says the study found additional flexibility for workers who are 45 and older doesn't come with reduced productivity. 
this is really oriented toward low and middle wage workers, that upper wage, more advantaged workers often have these benefits kind of built in anyway. Like I could go pick up my mother for a doctor's appointment, but people in much more constrained working environments don't have that opportunity. The study followed about 1,500 people over six months to see how workplaces approached increasing job flexibility to achieve a better balance between work life and home life. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. 42 degrees in Boston. Clouds roll in tonight. Winds pick up. Temperatures fall to about 34. Tomorrow only in the mid-40s again with plenty of rain, especially after noontime tomorrow. Friday should be cloudy, a bit milder, breaking into the 50s. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere this Friday. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Jerusalem, specifically right underneath the new gate. This is one of the eight gates of the old city wall. It provides direct access to, uh, to the Christian quarter, one of the four quarters of the old city. The war of these last four weeks is changing life in Israel in all kinds of ways. Among them, tourists, the economy, our businesses open. We've come to spend a little bit of time walking around the old city and taking a look. First stop, a wine bar named Taboon, just ahead on the left. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. How are you? This is Miran Krikorian, the owner. He tells me this empty stone street is usually packed. But since the war began, he leads us inside his place, they haven't even bothered to set out tables. You've got a lot of table and chairs, they're all we stacked have, up. We have, yeah. we have permits to put about 16 tables outside and four tables inside. So what we do is usually we stack everything here, we don't even use it, we only have those four tables that we put outside and we hope for the best. Miran is third generation Armenian. His grandparents fled to Jerusalem during the massacre of Armenians in 1915. He says his place is famous for Armenian food. He wants it to be famous for Armenian wine, which they were just starting to import when the war began. Right now we're thinking about how to survive because we have rent and we have everything. So we're thinking how to manage all this. After that, we will think about importing wine because you know we're talking about big, uh, huge sums of money. Miran says many of his friends are out of jobs right now and that the emotional weight of the conflict is heavy. His wife is Palestinian and has family in Gaza. So everyone is kind of, yeah, uneasy and depressed. I feel like at least we still have a home to go to, you know. Yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. 
Miran and his wife have considered packing up, moving their family away from Jerusalem, away from Israel altogether. His dad counseled them otherwise. I was talking to my dad because my wife threw the idea of relocating somewhere else. And I was like, let's talk to my dad. He's been here at the 67 war, at the 73 war, at the first intifada. And he was like, don't get excited too much. It happens every few years. Everything goes down. You destroy everything, and then you start rebuilding everything again. Not everyone is in this mindset. Down a long, long set of stone steps winding down into the old city, we find a business owned by a Palestinian Korean woman. She closed because of the war. She has not reopened. It is not clear when or whether she will. Hi. Natalie? Yeah. Natalie Bajali owns Cafe Bajali and Co., spelled K-O, a Palestinian-Korean fusion cafe. The name combines her father and her mother's surnames. We'll eat kimchi with ma'lube, kimchi with the majaddara. Um, so I just wanted to offer some food that's delicious the way I would enjoy it as well. Her cafe is gorgeous. Arched stone ceilings, stained glass, sun streaming in, dappling the floor. Her family has owned this space since the 1920s. First, they had a carpet store, then a coffee shop. It was just three months ago that Natalie took over and started cooking. She says all kinds of customers, especially tourists from Asia, could not get enough. Then came the war. Priorities have changed. My priority isn't like my business anymore in a sense. My mind is elsewhere. She's still doing private catering gigs, but coming here to the old city feels scary now. As you can see walking through the city, there's not many people. There's not much traffic. Uh, people are scared to come down. As far as the thought of reopening, it can wait. I'm not so concerned about selling and thriving in my business. I think we're all concerned about the future and what that holds because it's so unpredictable and we don't see what what is coming, I think that's what we're focused on more than anything. So our next step, we're trying to find an Israeli business, a business run by Jewish people, which is open here in the old city. We're on Jewish Quarter Street. It is a ghost town. <laughs> you can hear you can hear the echo of what is apparently usually a packed street. Israel's tourism minister confirms the ghost town feeling is real. Before the war, on average, 15,000 tourists a day entered Israel. On October 30th, so last week, it was 26 tourists for the whole country. Under a row of ancient arches off Jewish Quarter Street, I stopped to chat with a man wearing an artist smock, wielding a paintbrush, busy painting a huge, maybe eight-foot-tall canvas. He told me I was the first person he'd seen all morning. He declined to be interviewed on tape because, he said, the media is anti-Israel and would twist his words. But he agreed to chat and to show me his gallery and agreed for me to share his view that many of his fellow Israelis aren't bothering to open their shops these days because it's too expensive to pay for air conditioning and to turn the lights on when all their customers have vanished. We were about to give up when we met Itai Levy. His store is the only one open around here. It's lined with tall shelves of intricately carved wooden harps. This is called kino. It's, it's a Jewish instrument that King David was playing on him. And 
It's like a little harp, mm -hmm. eight-string harp. Do they all work? Can yeah, play of them? course. It's a very great uh, instrument. Would you sh can we yeah. hear it? Levy carves these harps himself from cypress wood. He's new in the neighborhood. In this shop, it's three months. Ah. Yes, I'm new, new here. And I start to build here and oops. Ah. No, it's okay. It's okay. Everything it's okay? okay. Is it always this quiet since the war? Uh, since the war? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are in the war. So why is he here? What keeps him going? I, uh, and this is the situation, and we'll deal it. That's all. Each day, take what comes, figure it out. Uh, yeah, each day, each day it's um, more. Uh, Every day is like an adventure. Adventure, yeah. new adventure. Yeah. Yes. Our local producer Sasan Khalif helps to translate. Levi and I chat a bit longer. I almost forget to ask. Yeah. What is the name of your store? Melechet Shalom, the work of peace. The work of peace. Yeah. It's beautiful. Elsewhere on the program, we visit the occupied West Bank, where we witnessed a Palestinian farmer being blocked from his family land. That was our All Things Considered co-host, Mary Louise Kelly. She and the team have been reporting from the Middle East all this week. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. You would think that after negotiating a big win for its members, the United Auto Workers Union would take a break. Instead, the UAW is already picking an even tougher fight, this time in the South. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports the UAW is working hard to recruit more Southern auto workers into the union. The UAW's president, Sean Fain, has a reputation as a fighter, and he's already looking for his next bout. One of our biggest goals coming out of this historic contract victory is to organize like we've never organized before. As in organize foreign automakers. Detroit may still be known as the Motor City, but since the 80s, the South has attracted more than a dozen assembly plants from foreign automakers like BMW and Hyundai. These plants employ tens of thousands of workers, nearly all of them without a union. Fain wants to change that. When we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three, but with the big five or big six. The new UAW deals have workers talking, like at a Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, just north of Jackson. That's where Ramel Nash works as a technician. Nash was part of a union campaign at this plant that went on for 10 years before a big loss in 2017. So his advice to Fain is don't drag your feet. You wait too long, people get back to a normal, you know, attitudes. You know, right now, if we go ahead and try to do something soon, 
you know, maybe we can get a lot more progress, you know, while everything is hot. Now, Fein's not the first UAW president to pick a fight with foreign automakers. Bob King tried it about a decade ago when he held the title. Stephen Sylvia wrote a book that includes that time called The UAW's Southern Gamble. He says King went after Mercedes in Alabama, Volkswagen in Tennessee. And the Nissan plant in, in Canton, Mississippi, and put a lot of money behind it. Yeah, and how did that work out for him? Well, uh, there was a lot of money spent and there was a lot of effort, but uh, they went for 0 for 3. Foreign automakers came to southern states in part because they offered incentive packages worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Sylvia says conservative lawmakers often use those incentives to pressure the car makers into fighting against unions. And one of the best ways they keep unions out is simply by paying their workers really well. The top paid technicians at the Mississippi Nissan plant say they earn about $30 an hour. That's close to union wages before the UAW's New Deal. In fact, just a week after the UAW reached a tentative agreement with Ford, Toyota promised to raise wages about 9% for some workers. So you think the Toyota one was in response to the UAW? Yes, I do. It came, you know, a week later. That's not a coincidence. So Now, the UAW contract would come with an even larger immediate pay bump and goes up to 25% over four and a half years. And that gives the UAW something it hasn't had in decades, a big win to show off to non-union workers. Travis Parks is a pro-union technician at the Nissan plant in Mississippi. He says the new contract could set the UAW up for a home run. We might have the bases loaded, but, but it's still up to the batter, which is the workers at Nissan in Canton, to determine whether or not they hit it out of the park. He's heard workers talking about unionizing at the plant, just not as many as he'd like. That's because lots of workers are just happy they got the rare Mississippi job that pays well. You know, you don't want to lose that. And that's, and that's what they tell them. You know, I got a guy that's, uh, he's a preacher I work with. He said, you know, at least I'm getting my daily bread. That's how he looks at it. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basahan, Birmingham. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, elections have wrapped up across the country with some stunning results. Our story on what the election tells us about what's on the minds of Americans coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. When you get news alerts all day long, it can be tough to get a handle on the full story. Get context and perspective live on the WBUR mobile app. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies, temperatures about 34 degrees. Then for tomorrow, only in the mid-40s again. Plenty of rain, especially during the afternoon hours. Friday should be cloudy and a little bit milder, maybe in the 50s. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Check it all up on me and I can show it the deal like. 
jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. What was your favorite American Girl doll? The one you identified with? My name is Allison Horitz, and I am still a Molly McIntyre. I'm Mary Mahoney, and I'm definitely a Molly. That's Allison Horrocks and Mary Mahoney, two historians and friends. And they're talking about the American Girl doll, Molly McIntyre, one of the original 18-inch dolls released by Pleasant Company. She is a nine-year-old World War II patriot whose father is away at war. Horrocks and Mahoney host a popular podcast that dives into the historical fiction series, book by book. But also musings on today's pop culture, like The Bachelor, and deep conversations about which of the OG American Girl dolls may have been queer. Mahoney and Horrocks have also written a book. It is called Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl. And when I talked with them recently, I had to ask how they first connected as adults over American Girl and figured out that it was a shared language. I think it may have been about Felicity. Yeah. Which was a mistake. Which was a mistake. We had no memory. One of the things we bonded over was just how clueless we were about the actual plots of those books because, you know, so much of memory is rehearsed. And I think we definitely were rehearsing a performance that had no relationship to fact about these books because I remember saying like, oh, yeah, wasn't Felicity in Boston? And I think she worked for John Adams. And Allison was like, yeah, co-signing this. We were completely wrong. She lived in Virginia. And we, you know, had none of the facts, but we were laughing so much just reminiscing about it. And I remember we were invited to someone's birthday party in grad school. And I don't know what possessed us to do this. We were both recovering separately from a stomach bug. But we decided unprompted that we were going to gift this person an American Girl book that we wrote that was going to be based on their research area, which was the Reformation, which sidebar we know nothing about. Um <laughs> And of course, as true authors, you know, really selfless, we wrote ourselves into the book almost immediately. And this book that was supposed to be about our friend quickly became about us. And it was, it's deeply unhinged. It's buried deep in our Google Drive. No one will ever see this, um, we hope. But, you know, we were laughing so much. And I think that's really, you know, what it's meant to me is like, an it's an opportunity just for so much laughing and fun and silliness and you know it was exactly the same for me as a kid but you know let's hope I have a better vocabulary now who knows but I mean that's what it's been for me. What about you Allison? Yeah I I imagine that book will surface at some point. I think it's probably better than we remember. I don't know Allison. (laughs) Honestly I remember I tied it with ribbon to make it look fancy so that was pretty cool. Um so I think part of it is we that we did put Lisa Frank stickers on it. We did in true Reformation style. <laughs> it's definitely that shared language. And I got really afraid when we started reading Molly because the books she's, you know, if you're saying for years that this person is a mirror and then you're not really loving what you're seeing <laughs> in that mirror, I've, I've decided to kind of like begrudgingly still lo- love Molly the book character, but more affiliate with the Molly that I've created in my mind through my own 
doll collection. What's given it more stamina for me is the newer characters we've covered, the more in-depth stuff that American Girl has been doing. For folks who are not as immersed in the world of American Girl as the two of you are, can you just give us a Cliff's Notes version of how this brand came to be and Pleasant Roland, the woman who is behind American Girl? So Pleasant Roland was someone who was an educational entrepreneur. And there's a lot of really wild profiles of her during this time, which really bear out sort of the values that you might see embedded in American Girl when it was founded in the 80s, including a focus on both empowering women, that's how she understood the feminist movement, but not wanting to lose what she called the basic femininity of women. Um, and after that career path, she goes into developing a literacy program, um, which was very successful, and then created American Girl in 1986 after a very 1980s experience of going to the mall and trying to buy a toy for her niece and being frankly appalled um, by the toys on offer, especially for girls. And that same year, she went on vacation to Colonial Williamsburg. And if you've not been to that museum, it's a great living history museum. She kind of had what Oprah would call an aha moment and, you know, basically dreamed up this product where she could tell stories that put girls at the center of different moments in American history that both empowered them through play, but then taught them a lot and created opportunities to bond with people in their lives, family members. I mean, your book and your podcast gets into some of the things that are really messy about American Girl. I mean, these stories are so meaningful and resonant for us, even in our 30s. And yet, at times, American Girl hasn't felt accessible to everyone. I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that these dolls are really expensive. Not everyone can afford to own them. And that means that some of the magic doesn't get passed to everyone. Can we talk about that a little bit? Definitely. That's a really important point. Um, there's so many different areas where you see that showing up in the brand. One is sort of the original tone deafness of some of the stories they tell. So the first books we read on the show were the Felicity books in which her family claims ownership over enslaved people. And yet it's built into the story that you're not supposed to view her as racist because she has a black friend. And, you know, that's tough to read now. It's sort of unfathomable how that happened in the early 90s when it was published. But you can also see issues of accessibility. So along issues of race, like if you were a person of color, what are you supposed to do with the fact that the first doll that looks like you is an enslaved person that you're invited to buy? And we've heard from a lot of listeners who, you know, as Black girls, Black women have had to negotiate and renegotiate the relationship to a character that was really meaningful to them and continues to be. And as we talked about before, there's the economic barrier of the fact that this stuff has never been cheap, and that's a through line. I mean, the two of you have spent years at this point immersing yourselves in everything American girl and thinking critically about what, for many of us, is a formative childhood experience. For each of you, how has this changed your personal relationship with American Girl and your relationship to these stories? This is Allison. American Girl was definitely a thing I shared with my family and one or two friends as a child. And now I have, you know, Discord and Facebook groups and different communities where I can say, you know, I bought an 18-inch horse today and there's people who will, you know, celebrate that with me. So, the stories, sometimes they can feel, you know, like flat and fixed in space and time. But the stuff, like I know I can do stuff with that. And, and that's very exciting to me in a way that it was even when I was eight. 
So that's kind of a thing for me that that hasn't changed so much. As an adult who now knows I'm a queer person and did not know that as a child reading these books, it's been fun and empowering to see queer coded characters and to read queerness into the books, you know, in the hopes of finding more representation in this brand that continues to mean a lot to me. Mary Mahoney and Allison Horrocks, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Their book, Dolls of Our Lives, Why We Can't Quit American Girl, is out now. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's Hidden Gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As the war between Israel and Hamas continues in Gaza, life remains difficult in the occupied West Bank. Palestinian farmers say they can't take care of the olive harvest because they're harassed by Israelis there. We faced a little bit of problems before uh, in the harvest season, but in this season it's terrible. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We speak with a farmer as he and our NPR reporting staff are questioned by Israeli security forces. Elections wrapped up again across the country and abortion showed its relevance once again, more than a year after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision against abortion rights. And many school districts around the U.S. are moving to a four-day school week to retain teachers. Districts that don't want to raise taxes to pay teachers more are using the long weekend as an incentive. It's 601 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is taking a victory lap after last night's elections. NPR's Asma Khalid reports the administration says the results show Biden's values and agenda winning big. Democrats won key victories in Kentucky, Virginia, and Ohio, where voters decided to enshrine the right to an abortion in the state constitution. Vice President Kamala Harris has spearheaded the administration's reproductive rights fight. The voters said, look, the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. I think voters have been clear, regardless of whether they're in a so-called red or blue state, that one does not have to abandon their faith 
or deeply held beliefs to agree the government should not be telling a woman what to do with her body. Harris said it was a good night for freedom and democracy. Democrats believe abortion rights will be a compelling campaign issue for them heading into 2024. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Who will govern Gaza when the Israel-Hamas war ends? Secretary of State Antony Blinken is calling for Gaza and the Israeli-occupied West Bank to be united under one leadership. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Minister Benny Gantz is a member of Israel's decision-making war cabinet, along with the prime minister and defense minister. In a briefing with foreign media, including NPR, he said Israel must replace the Hamas regime in Gaza. He said he doesn't know what will replace it, but that Israel must maintain, quote, security superiority over Gaza. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is laying out a specific vision for Gaza's future. He said there must be Palestinian governance, unified with the West Bank, under the internationally recognized Palestinian Authority. That vision could create a clash with Israel's leadership, which has resisted uniting the two Palestinian territories in the last decade and a half. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former President Donald Trump's daughter Ivanka Trump was on the witness stand today to civil fraud trial in New York. Ivanka Trump was not a defendant in the case, testifying she had no role in her father's personal financial statements. Trump and other defendants in the case have denied inflating the value of his properties. Facebook's parent company Meta says political ads on its platform must soon include a disclosure if they use artificial intelligence. NPR's Shannon Bond reports. Meta's new rule applies to ads about elections, politics, and social issues. It takes effect next year. If advertisers use AI or other digital means to create or alter images, video, or audio, they must let viewers know. That includes showing a person or event that doesn't exist, depicting a real person doing or saying something they didn't, or altering footage from a real event. Meta says unlabeled ads will be rejected and repeat violators could be penalized. Shannon Bond, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow is down 40 points. The Nasdaq rose 10 points. You're listening to NPR. Good evening. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Amtrak and its partners on Beacon Hill are getting more than $16 billion to improve the busy northeast corridor between Boston and Washington, D.C. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez reports the money comes from President Biden's 2021 infrastructure law. Amtrak will use the funds to repair and modernize bridges and tunnels along the route, some of which are 150 years old. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is among the agencies working with Amtrak. MassDOT's Rail and Transit Administrator Meredith Schlesinger says the funding will help advance rail projects in the state. Improvements on this corridor will benefit the MassDOT-supported inland route to make infrastructure improvements between Worcester and Springfield so that we can have service between Boston and Springfield and New Haven to then connect to New York. A representative from Amtrak says it will take between 5 and 15 years to complete all the projects along the corridor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Two Bay State residents face federal conspiracy charges for allegedly operating a network of brothels in Massachusetts and Virginia. Prosecutors say Han Lee of Cambridge and Jung Myung of Dedham and a third person from California ran brothels in Cambridge and Watertown and two in Virginia. Alleged clients connect with the brothel online and met in high-end apartment buildings in North Cambridge and Arsenal Yards in Watertown. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, their clients included elected officials and government contractors who have security clearances. Their names have not been released. Governor Moore Healy says Massachusetts should do more to make health care affordable and more equitable. Healy addressed the Health Policy Commission in Boston this morning and spoke with reporters afterwards. 
What's important here is that we do the work to update and modernize the tools given to the HPC and others to make sure we're driving down costs, we're reining in costs. We need to do that for residents. We need to do that for businesses. Healy stopped short of saying exactly what new powers state officials need to control medical costs. Mass General Brigham is teaming up with the healthcare arm of Best Buy to provide patients with medical monitoring equipment at home. Mass General says its home hospital service allows some patients to receive hospital-level care at home after they've been receiving inpatient care at the hospital. Patients will wear armbands that transmit medical data, such as heart rates and oxygen levels, to health care providers. Somerville is the latest city in Massachusetts to consider rent control. The city council will take up a plan to cap rent increases at no more than 5% per year. The proposed rent stabilization plan also offers new protections against wrongful evictions. A similar rent control proposal in Boston, introduced in April, has yet to move forward. And a memorial has been dedicated to the state police barracks at the state police barracks in South Yarmouth to a trooper who died from injuries she received in the line of duty. Trooper Ellen Engelhart was parked on the side of Route 25 in Wareham when she was struck by a drunk driver back in 2003. She suffered severe brain injuries and died in 2011. In the Boston area, 40 degrees now. Should be cloudy, windy, and cold again tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Showers tomorrow, especially during the afternoon. Lots of clouds around. Temperatures in the mid-40s tops. Friday could stay cloudy, but turn a little bit warmer. 40 degrees in Boston at 6.08. WBUR supporters include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society in its hometown of Flint and communities around the world. More at Mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly reporting this week from the Middle East. There are times on this job when you set out to do a story and you think you know where it's going and the day ends up spinning in unexpected directions. This is the story of one such day in the Israeli-occupied West Bank, the other Palestinian territory. We came here yesterday to see a small town called Deir Estia and to meet a 54-year-old man named Ayub Abu Hejli. In his family home, where he made us Arabic coffee. Okay, this is a little bit... Over the coffee, he explains a problem he's having. I uh, planted around 370 olive trees, grapes, uh, figs. 370 olive trees. They are groaning with olives, ready to pick. This is harvest season. But he hasn't been able to. Not one. We faced a little bit of problems before uh, in the harvest season, but in this season, it's terrible. He says Israeli soldiers and settlers have blocked him from his land since the war started. That was back on October 7th, when Hamas insurgents attacked Israel, killing more than 1,400 people. While the world has focused on Israel's response in Gaza, violence here in the West Bank is also spiking. Attacks on Palestinians by the Israeli military and settlers are up. The International Crisis Group estimates more than 130 Palestinians have been killed in the West Bank since the war began. Israel's military says they are conducting raids on militants. Ayub says when he tries to get to his olive trees, the war is the reason Israeli soldiers give for stopping him. They say it's forbidden you to stay here because we are in a war, so we are coming to protect you. 
So I say to him, you are not coming to protect me, you are coming to protect the settlers, because you are coming from a settlement. On October 13th, Ayub says that settlers rolled in with diggers, tore up the dirt road to his fields, that they severed the irrigation pipes he'd installed. He has not set foot on his land since. I'm raising these olive trees like my children. So it's not the issue of income. It's our land, you know. The connection of the trees, the soil, the stones, uh, this is the important. The olive harvest does represent a key supplement for many family incomes. But Ayub's point is, for many families, the land has been passed down for generations. Ayub hopes his children will farm his land one day. This is how it works around here, says Donna Sharon, a rabbi from a kibbutz in central Israel. She is Israeli and with a group called Rabbis for Human Rights, who are here at Ayub's house with us. They work with Palestinian farmers during the olive harvest, trying to help farmers access their land safely. She told me this while we were waiting by the car. There is no other place to be as far as I'm concerned. The way things here are managed or mismanaged is beyond awful. I just want to make a very clear statement, not on my behalf, definitely not on behalf of my religion. On this day, Ayub offers to show us his land, not to walk on it, just glimpse it from a neighboring hill. He does this trip often, says it won't be a problem, that if we are stopped, we'll just be asked to leave. We follow Ayub in his car down a steep dirt road, only a few minutes' drive from his house in town. We stop. He shows us where the road has been torn up. So they damaged there, as you see, three times they damaged the road. Our team pulls on our flak jackets, press written in big letters across the front, and then we hear a buzzing. A drone has appeared to hover above us. Someone knows we're here. We start walking over the remnants of the destroyed road, like and then, day. here we go. I don't know, maybe settler, maybe soldiers, I don't know. Soldiers appear, quite a few of them. Uh, one, two, three, yeah, four is. that I can see. Mm. Some come over the hill on foot, others drive up in an SUV. Some have their faces covered with balaclavas. All of them, about a dozen by the end, have guns. Hi. Shalom. Shalom. Media. Press. They are not happy with us. In Hebrew, they yell that we need to leave, that we have crossed a barrier. For the record, there is no barrier, no signage. They tell us this is a time of war. And then they separate Ayub from our group, tell us they need to question him. We say we don't want to leave without him. Is it possible for someone to stay here with him? So he, he, they said no one will stay. They're gonna be the soldiers refuse. A gun lifts, points straight at us. So we back off. As the soldiers walk Ayub around a hill and out of our sight, we ask Dana, the rabbi who works regularly with Palestinian farmers here, how unusual is this situation? We've never seen anything like this before. This is not according to any protocol that we're familiar with or are experienced with. She says she is extremely worried. Her colleague, Danny, gets on the phone, starts making calls in Hebrew, in Arabic. Okay. Calls to the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, to the police, to lawyers. 
we also get on the phone with a media contact we have in the IDF. We tell him where we are, what's happening. All right, so first of all, I will check right now what happened, uh, see what we can do about it. And we wait. We don't want to leave Ayub. The soldiers told us they would only question him for a few minutes, but we can't tell if he's still nearby. The soldier's vehicle is gone. So we're now at about 45 minutes since Ayub has been separated from us, taken. I can't see him, uh, but the, we can see the soldiers, so we don't think they've left or taken him anywhere. And so we wait. Around then, the drone comes back. It's hovering lower and lower. Finally, more than 90 minutes after Ayub was taken away, our IDF contact calls. He reports Ayub is safe, and he strongly advises us to leave the area. So, reluctantly, we do. We head to Firas Diab's office. He's the mayor of Daristia. We'd called him to see if he could help. <laughs> mayor Diab is also an olive farmer. On the side, 160 trees. And I can't harvest them because they're close to a settlement too and I can't even reach them. No harvest at all? You haven't been able to get any olives? Until this day, no. Big portraits of the late Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat and the current Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas hang on his wall at Town Hall. We ask the mayor why scenes like the one we just witnessed are unfolding in fields all around his town. What do you think the goal is here? Why, why is the military doing this? This is an old thing that we see in a new way. Their goal, their aim is the land, and they're using the war in order to seize the land. Back at Ayub's house, the family has gathered. Everyone's worried. Everyone is tense. Then, his sister's phone rings. Ayub has been released. The sister bursts into tears of relief. She calls me to her. You Americans, she tells me, look at what's happening to us Arabs here, to our people, to our land. Ayub's son goes to collect him. We all wait outside in plastic chairs. And soon, a car pulls up the hill, honking in celebration. Ayub gets out, big smile. Everyone rushes to greet him. His daughter, his wife, his sons, his young granddaughter. <laughs> we sit down with Ayub to make sure he's okay and to hear what happened. He tells us after he was led away, he was blindfolded, handcuffed. Then they drove him to a military office in a nearby settlement where he was mocked and questioned. They say it's, uh, it's our land, it's not your land. So you must forget it. But now he's home. 
Are you okay? I'm okay, alhamdulillah. As we prepare to leave, I ask Ayub, will you go back? Will you try to see your land again? I will go back. Don't worry. They will arrest it and I will return back and until I will fix my land. It's our land. NPR producers Kat Lonsdorf and Erica Ryan and local producer Sasan Khalif contributed to this story. And our reporting continues through this week. We'll be hearing voices from across Israel and across the region. You can read more and hear more of NPR's reporting on the war between Israel and Hamas at npr.org, on your phone, on your smart speaker, or on your good old-fashioned radio. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up tonight on Marketplace Advertising in the Age of Social Media. Not a lot of movement by the end of the day on Wall Street today. A slight dip for the Dow. The index fell about a tenth of a percent. S&P rose a tenth of a percent, and the Nasdaq gained just under a tenth of a percent. The Cambridge-based car shopping site CarGurus is buying a car trading company in Texas. The deal with Car Offer is for $75 million in cash. CarGurus has already got a 51% stake in the company. Guru's new headquarter offices are being built over the Mass Turnpike. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fresh City Kitchen. With the goal of delivering holiday catering, everyone will keep talking about. FreshCityKitchen.com I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Lots of clouds around tonight. Windy, cold again. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Showers tomorrow, especially in the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-40s tops. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Considered from NPR News, I'm Elsa Cheng. And I'm Scott Detrow. Yesterday's elections in states like Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky have Democrats feeling good. More than a year after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion rights continue to be a key issue. Increasingly conservative Ohio voted to protect them in the state's constitution, and abortion was a key theme in Virginia's legislative races as well. For more on what we can make of the results and what they may mean for next year's presidential election, NPR's senior political editor, Domenico Montanaro, is on the line. And Domenico, uh, you're joining us from a place pretty relevant to that presidential election. Where are you? Hey there, Scott. Yeah, I'm in Miami. I'm literally looking at the debate site uh, right now, and uh, we'll be there for the Republican presidential debate tonight, where the stage has been winnowed down to just five candidates. So it's going to be really interesting. So we'll get back to that election in a moment, but let's start with what happened last night. Big picture, what do these results tell us about the electoral landscape right now? 
I mean, the big takeaway continues to be about abortion rights. I mean, it's still a losing issue for conservatives, a motivating one for Democrats. I mean, just look at Ohio, which has really become a red state favoring Republicans in presidential elections, but a majority voted to enshrine abortion rights into their state constitution. Remarkable, really. And you wonder when Republicans will realize that this is just a losing issue for them. And uh, Virginia's legislature was uh, on the ballot last night. And I know from watching uh, playoff baseball, every single commercial break, there were ads about abortion rights. That issue just dominated that race as well. Oh, my goodness. It was abortion rights versus crime, and clearly abortion rights won out. You know, Democrats retained the Senate, retook the House, controlling the entire legislature really, again, on the back of abortion as an issue. Republican Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin really campaigned across the state on a 15-week abortion ban. Now it's not going to happen, and he spent a lot of political capital on this. His political career really took a huge blow last night. He's not only left as a lame duck for his final couple of years in office, but his chances for president in 2028 really took a nosedive. I mean, he championed a policy Republican activists don't even want, and clearly swing voters rejected it too. Like I said, crime was also a big issue here. It's a thing Republicans continue to think that they can use to help blunt the effects of abortion as an issue uh, in the suburbs and with women, and boy, were they wrong. I mean, looking at the data, Democrats really used abortion as an issue across the country, up and down the ballot, more than 350,000 airings on TV and online focusing on this. Three quarters of those ads run by Democrats, more than $90 million spent, according to uh, the uh, ad tracking firm Ad Impact and analyzed by NPR. Uh, Conversely, you know, $60 million was spent on ads related to crime, mostly by Republicans, just didn't have the same salience. Aside from a place like Long Island, where Republicans continued last night to make gains, they're really going to have to re-examine how to win in the suburbs and swing areas. And that includes with these school board fights, you know, and book bans. You know, there's a backlash to that in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where Democrats organized and retook a local school board there, too. Uh, Key governor's races to tell us about quickly. Yeah, big win in Kentucky for Democrat Andy Bashir. His win, uh, you know, gives him reelection. Remarkable what he's been able to do there politically in a state that voted for Trump by almost 26 by almost 26 points. If Youngkin's stock has plummeted for 2028, Bashir's is on the rise. And you got about 20 seconds left. Confident you, if anyone can do it. What, if anything, does this mean for the election a year from now? Uh, I'd put as much stock in these results as I would swing state polls a year out from an election. <laughs> Fact is, hmm. you know, these were lower turnout elections than presidentials, and that changes the electorate. You know, wh- President Biden certainly has a lot of issues that he has with his brand, mm-hmm. but so does President Trump. We're going to see if that's even the rematch we wind up seeing. That's Domenico Montanaro joining us from Miami. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. There are schools across the country that are dropping a day of school every week. 7% of school districts in the U.S. are now just four days long. In Missouri, it's 30% of districts. In Colorado, it's 67%. Sarah Gonzalez from our Planet Money podcast explains why. A few years ago, the Warren County R3 school district in Missouri kept losing teachers, like 50 teachers a year to the next district over, which pays more. We just couldn't compete. So the superintendent, Greg Klingensmith, asked voters twice to raise taxes so they could increase teacher pay, which earned him a little reputation around town. They like to tease me as a Dr. Kling on my money. Kling on my money or something like that, which is fun. Voters rejected both tax increases. One thing we value here is low taxes. And so you just, okay, what, what can we do? Greg decided he can 
cut out an entire day of school every week. He still pays teachers the same amount. They just get three-day weekends all the time now. And to understand how that free day off gets spent in most places, we went to a true expert in another district. Oh, hi, I'm Kennedy Montgomery and I'm nine. Kennedy is a big Texas Rangers fan, loves pink, soccer, and she is a proud straight-A fourth grader. I never fall behind. Ooh, they like that. Mm-hmm. In China Spring, Texas, there is no school on Fridays anymore. Instead, she gets dropped off at a church, which she says is not fun. My favorite part is when we go to the library and watch a movie. Oh, you get to watch a movie? Yes, every Friday. Oh. We usually go there twice and... Sometimes we don't finish the movie, but last time we did watch two movies. So it's like really definitely not like school. No, it's way different. It's daycare, and it costs money. It's hard financially because it's like $45 a a Friday for me to go. Yeah, $45 every Friday. This is Kennedy's mom, Jessica Montgomery. It's just to keep your kid alive. China Spring voters also wouldn't raise taxes to pay teachers more. And now the community basically gets like 20 percent less education for their community with their tax dollars. So the taxes are the same. Everyone just gets less out of it now. If the tax hike had gone through, homeowners with take a house worth $200,000 would have paid less than $60 extra a year. Kennedy's mom now pays $1,260 extra a year in this Friday childcare. And this is kind of a tax. So this is definitely a tax on parents. Paul Thompson is an economics professor at Oregon State University. And he says even though some smaller, more rural school districts moved to four-day school weeks years ago, Paul says it's spreading really fast now and mostly based on anecdotal evidence from a neighboring district that this totally helps teacher retention. They say applications are up you know, four times what they normally are for teaching vacancies. And using that as kind of suggestive evidence, like, oh, this was great you know, for our district. But Paul says there is something happening already that is starting to undercut the four-day school week as a recruitment tool. Um, you know, so we get these contagion effects. Contagion. One district does it, then the neighboring district does it too. There are entire clusters now in Texas, Missouri, Montana, where every district anywhere near you only offers four days of instruction. There is no other option. And when you get these cluster contagion effects, schools lose their competitive advantage. I mean, ultimately, if we only have four-day school weeks, teachers aren't choosing where to work based on the school schedule. They're choosing over what monetary benefits schools are offering. Yeah, so districts might be right back where they started, trying to appeal to teachers based on salary. It's just school is four days now instead of five. Sarah Gonzalez, NPR News. And you can hear about how four-day school weeks affect student achievement and crime on NPR's Planet Money program. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. Two Boston teams are taking on Philadelphia rivals tonight. Celtics take on the 76ers in Philly. Both teams are 5-1 and one so far in the season. New England Revolution look to stay alive in Major League Soccer playoffs. They host the Philadelphia Union 
If the Revs lose tonight, they're out of the playoffs. If they win, they'll play a third and deciding game in Philadelphia on Sunday. Amtrak is cutting fares for travel between December and mid-March. You have to buy your ticket between now and November 15th. One-way coach tickets from Boston to Providence are as low as $4. One-way tickets to New York start at $25, and tickets to Washington, D.C. are as low as $29. 40 degrees in the Boston area. The time is 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com.